Everyday Conversations, a podcast by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Following Jesus is a whole of life pursuit. As friends talk and share and learn and ask, we pray that you would be encouraged to think deeply. I'm Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. I'm Senior Lecturer in History at Western Sydney University. Um, And I'm joined today by two friends of mine. Um, Firstly, Rebecca McLaughlin and uh, also Natasha Moore. Uh, Rebecca, you and I know each other from when we did our doctorates together at the University of Cambridge, but I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, yes, my name is Rebecca McLaughlin. I um, grew up in the UK, but I currently live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. New Cambridge, as I like to call it. Uh, I um, uh, I guess I'm an author at this point. I've got one book out a couple of years ago called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, uh, which is an apologetics book. Um, and I've got three other books in the pipelines uh, exploring different angles uh, coming out of that. Oh, wow, three. And um, Natasha, you also have a doctorate from Cambridge, um, but I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> We all studied at the same university. How nice. Um, I, my name is Natasha Moore. I am these days a research fellow uh, with the Centre for Public Christianity. Um, I live in Sydney, which is my hometown. Um, my background is kind of English literature. Um, so that's what I did my PhD in. I, Sarah, yeah. Oh, yay. <laughs> which college were you at, Rebecca? Trinity. Ah, I'm a Queen's girl. So I, I mean, I haven't read your book yet, but I've been meaning to. I feel like everybody I know is reading your book. Um, and Sarah and I, we met um, when I got to interview you for our podcast about your, you know, story of um, your journey from atheism to Christianity. So, yeah. Yeah. I was an atheist while I was at Cambridge and Rebecca was a Christian. But anyway, that's another story. Um So today, thank you so much for joining me, both of you. We are going to be talking about human rights. And I think one of the reasons why we've chosen to talk about this is that it is such a pertinent issue. It seems to be in the news almost every day. But another thing that's really struck me lately is that some Christians seem to be a little nervous about the concept of human rights. And I think partly because they've unwittingly bought into a myth that human rights are somehow a secular invention of the 18th century enlightenment. But actually part of what we're gonna do today in our conversation is debunk that myth because historically human rights emerged from and were shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And as we'll see, and as we'll chat about, human rights continue to depend upon a biblical understanding of what a human being is and why human life is valuable and so on. But anyway, I guess we'll get to that later. Why don't we begin by just fleshing out what are human rights? Natasha, you can take that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I wish I knew. What a hard question. Um, Because there are are different things we mean when we say human rights. 
right? There's kind of the very specific thing, which is that we're, we're talking about uh, language which was kind of codified after the Second World War um, in the United Nations kind of Declaration of Human Rights and the idea that, you know, as humans, we have these uh, kind of uh, intrinsic things that we deserve, ways that we ought to be treated simply by virtue of being human. Um, so we, you can kind of look at it in those specific, you know, let's, let's list what the rights are. Every human has the right to, you know, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of um, uh, religion, uh, to freedom from slavery, uh, the rights to an education. You know, we can kind of, um, in a way, those are sort of fictions and ways of listing things that we believe to be true about humans. But that's kind of a very narrow definition in some ways. Like, uh, I think often, like if I'm talking about human rights, what I really mean is, uh, what do we think humans are? What do we think humans merit or deserve? How should they be treated? And that's a much longer kind of philosophical and religious mm. Um, mm. tradition and discussion um, that mm. goes back centuries and millennia. Um, so it kind of depends which one you're uh, talking about, I guess. Mm. Well, I think there's a, there's a basic sort of sub-level layer that underlies the idea of human rights, which is that human beings all have intrinsic value and that actually we are essentially morally equal, even if we live in different places and have different abilities and are different ages or you know, male or female, etc., uh, etc., et that there's, there's some sense in which regardless of who you are in a more specific way, that you are valuable because you're a human being and that, that there is something about um, Natasha Moore and Sarah Irving Strainbrecher that means even aside from your individual qualities, that you, you have equal claim to the goods of the world that I do. Um, that there's some, some kind of underlying sense of human equality that undergirds all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. This, so I think what we're saying is that there are really two components to this claim in the broader philosophical discussions that you're both alluding to, which is that one, every human life is infinitely precious. And then there's that other one that Rebecca, you were just mentioning there, which is that every human life is just as precious as every other human life, regardless of whether we are a male or a female or a particular member of a particular ethnicity and so forth. The thing I think is really interesting as a Christian and also as a historian is that both these claims, while they are absolutely central to the way that we even articulate sort of modern um, political ideas and carry on public debate and think about international law today, these ideas are actually historically a complete anomaly <laughs> and they're completely bizarre. Like when you study the history and a number of different civilizations and, and cultures, the notion that human life is inherently precious and valuable. And I think the even more radical claim that no human life is any more valuable than any other human life is actually completely distinct to unique to the, the Christian Bible and then the way that the Christian tradition developed. Mm -hmm. um, I think we see yeah. this particularly in the ancient world. Did either of you want to tell us a little bit about how radical this idea is in ancient cultures? Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting because I feel like there are two sort of incompatible and both mythical accounts 
that we have in our culture about human rights and human value. So one is that, you know, it's an invention of the Enlightenment, um, you know, maybe the French Revolution. We didn't have human rights um, until then, liberty, equality, fraternity. And the other account is kind of that, well, it's just self-evident that mm. all humans are valuable. Like, obviously, obviously everybody matters. Like, how could anyone not believe that? Um, and both of those are wrong. Um, actually, and, you know, you as an historian, it's very clear that you go back um, hundreds, thousands of years. It's not all obvious that, some hum that all humans are worth the same um, or that humans are worth anything particularly yeah. um, yeah. that you look at kind of the ancient world where you've got these slave empires where the vast majority of people are subordinate the vast majority of people are disposable um, there's just seem to be nothing wrong with that some people have power some people don't um, that's how it is uh, and, uh, you know, it's into that world that the Judeo-Christian and very specifically Judeo-Christian, so the Jewish idea of every human is an image of God is in some way like bears a relationship to the God who created everything and created them um, and therefore he bestows worth on them. So the, that's in kind of at the beginning of the Jewish Bible. And then it's really through Christianity that that idea starts to percolate through um, kind of the Roman Empire where it was not the norm and not, um, you know, it was, it was weird and kind of offensive, you know, the idea that a slave would be worth as much as, um, you know, the patrician nobleman. Mm. There are two books by non-Christian historians that I've read recently that have really uh, clarified my thinking on this. Interestingly, one is um, Tom Holland, British historian Tom Holland's book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, where he is arguing, again, from a non-Christian perspective, though I think he's, he's on the verge of, sort of considering Christianity right now, not at least because of his research. He's looking back over the last 2,000 years and concluding exactly, as you guys have been saying, that really the things that we hold today to be self-evident moral truths, whether we identify as Christian or, or atheist or agnostic or whatever, are actually specific inheritances from, from Christianity. Uh, and that there's no real grounding for those beliefs if we take God out of that equation. Um, and, and the other book that's been fascinating to me on this point is um, Yuval Noah Harari's massive global bestseller sapiens a brief history of humankind which i think was first published in english in 2014 and remains uh, i was just checking out it's in the top 15 bestsellers in all of amazon you know incredibly uh, well well received in, in terms of its popular um, buying power and harari will say things like human beings have no natural rights just as spiders hyenas and chimpanzees have no natural rights yeah he he talks about human rights as a, a christian fiction Yep. And points out that without Christianity, we have no reason to believe these things. And, and what interests me about these two books is that they both end up making the same point. But Tom Holland's tone is kind of uh, like a, a, a lament and there's a sense of desire to believe in the thing that would ground these core beliefs. Uh, and, and as I say, I think he may be close to that point. Uh, Harari just sort of mentions it casually. <laughs> um, which particularly when I mean, he's, he's an Israeli historian and I'm sort of thinking the way in which he, he can so sort of casually 
uh, multiple times in his book say, yes, we have absolutely no foundation for the idea that uh, you and I owe anything to each other or certainly to the, the poor and the oppressed and um, you know, the, those on the verge of being massacred. That, that any of these ideas are only really grounded by Christianity it is, I sort of feel like shaking him and saying, do you not see how bad this is? Like, if this is true, and if you are right that there is no God, do you not see how terrible this is? And it just doesn't seem to come through. In yeah, because, yeah, um, I mean, Tom Holland kind of says, you know, we're all Christian now. Like, there's a sense in which whatever you believe about the nature of the universe and whether there's a God or not, like, in Western culture um, and, you know, more or less... Um, in other cultures as well today, um, we have this moral intuition that we go, oh, no, we want, like, it's, it's morally beautiful to treat the vulnerable as important and valuable and deserving mm -hmm. good, um, and it's morally repulsive to treat people in, you know, all these other, in what we would call inhumane ways. But that moral intuition is very much cultivated by a long, 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 long and patchy, um, you know, uh, developments uh, of this idea of, well, humans are made in the image of God. Um, and so we can kind of, like, we don't realise where that influence comes from for Christians. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think Holland's other big driving point in his book is that really Jesus is death on the cross is central to this because he, he makes the point that um it, it wasn't alien to the thinking of a, a ancient greek or roman person that a god might take human form or that a human might become a god like both of those things there was a sort of mental space for those things but the idea that a god that god might become human and die the shameful death of a slave yeah completely outrageous yeah. And somehow in that act pins the, the centrality of, of the weak and the poor and the marginalized right at the heart of God's moral purposes for the world. But there's that it's the cross specifically that upends our moral systems. Yeah. So, yeah. So the question is then, well, how historically have we just inherited these ideas? And I think there, you know, there are kind of a few really important key moments in history um, in the ancient world, like as you guys were mentioning, it's actually, it's not uncommon for certain groups to hold certain privileges or entitlements or rights, but then the issue is only those groups hold them. So mm -hmm. like Greek and Roman citizens hold certain rights. So the key to understanding the history of human rights is really mapping the origin of the idea that all human beings by virtue of the very humanity have certain rights. And really where that comes from, as we've mentioned, is biblic is the Bible. And it begins as a kind of spiritual equality of all people, right? All people created in God's image, having rebelled against God, the gospel is open to all. But like what we see happen historically over the next like 2000 years, basically, is that what begins as a kind of spiritual equality gradually becomes a legal and then a political idea. So like by the end of the fourth century AD, you have early Christian authors like Basil of Caesarea arguing that all people, regardless of their humanity, are entitled to certain provisions. And that is so radical and so different to what any kind of particular rights look like in the ancient world. And then in the Middle Ages, you basically have a really, actually really important development where you have the origin of the idea that there might be natural rights. And here, like Christian thinkers, particularly in the intellectual renewal of the 12th century, 
basically began to argue that there was this thing called, in the Latin term they use, yours naturale, that there are like this thing called natural rights. And actually what happens is that the idea of yours naturale goes from being the right, meaning kind of the, the right state of affairs in the world to being kind of applied to particular subjects. It becomes a thing. And so you get this idea that there might exist certain natural kind of rights. So a natural right might be something that a human being can possess. And then you have to, I think, also look at the Protestant Reformation, because basically what happens in the Reformation is there's this idea that there are certain kind of natural, well, the most important natural right is really the natural right of conscience. And it's really in the Reformation that we see for the first time, people start to argue that all people have the right to a kind of freedom of conscience. And then in the 18th century, in terms of like, well, how do we get to this kind of idea today? In the 18th century, you really start to see, actually, I think the most interesting development of all, right? And it kind of explains and goes back to the two authors that Rebecca and Natasha were talking about. There's basically a kind of process of secularizing, where really what begins to happen is that the, the shell of these ideas that like human life is very valuable and all human life is equally valuable kind of remain. But what gradually happens is that their biblical content and the theological content starts to be removed. So from the 18th century onwards, when you have document, legal documents like the American Declaration of Independence that claims that all people are born equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Mm. You start to see in that kind of document, documents of the rights of man and citizen in the French Revolution, and then actually increasingly other countries adopt their own versions of constitutions and bills of rights. Here are these Judeo-Christian ideas, really Christian in their development, being adopted, and yet gradually the theological references start to be taken away. And so when you end up with this sort of classic document of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, where you basically have this kind of idea that most people today ascribe to, you can have a kind of idea of human rights and yet seemingly forget that it has this, it mm. actually relies upon this biblical underpinning. Well, and, and Tom Holland argues on that, interestingly, that it was quite deliberate on the part of, of those who were shaping the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because if it were to be seen as essentially Christian, it didn't have a hope of being adopted globally. And there were certain people since then have, have called that out. Uh, I, I think um, several majority Muslim countries signed into the Declaration of Human Rights, but others didn't. Uh, and, and subsequently, I think it was the, the Saudi Arabian representative who said that, you know, Muslims cannot buy into this because it's incompatible with Sharia law. And it's actually, it was described as like a, a Judeo-Christian, essentially a Judeo-Christian Bill of Rights. Yep. Uh, and so interestingly, we sort of see, we see the, we see the, this being exposed predominantly by Muslims looking at it and saying, no, this doesn't work for us. Um, but as I say, Tom Holland says that it was, it was, it was quite intentional to, to drop the Christian thinking and language or the question, the Christian language without dropping the Christian thinking um, to make it palatable more broadly. Yeah. And um, cause isn't one of the famous lines, Jacques Maritain, one of the kind of architects of the declaration who said, you know, we agree on the rights so long as nobody asks us why. 
Right. Um, that, you know, the underpinnings, you can have whatever underpinnings you like. Let's try and make this kind of beautiful fiction that humans have rights yeah. work um, in practice. But actually, you know, people have to come at that from their own direction. But isn't that terrifying? We, mm -hmm. We're not allowed to ask why. We're not allowed to ask why we believe the most important things that we believe. And, and we, we've raised generations of people thinking that they're as natural as gravity. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think because ultimately the way they have to work, and this is kind of how I think that it's that they've come into such ascendancy, is that, uh, you know, Christian people and others have acted as though humans are valuable. And in the process, what we see is something beautiful that we look at and go, we want to be like that. We want our society to be like that. Even when it's costly, even when it seems illogical, we want to treat people like they're valuable. And when we've done the opposite, you know, the declaration happened in the wake of World War II, um, we've been like, okay, actually, we don't want to be like that. Uh, so it's not a, you know, not everyone is going to subscribe to the Christian view of the world um, or of humans. Um, but is there kind of a workable way for us to agree on what's, you know, morally beautiful and morally desirable? Yeah. And yeah. I don't know what the future of human rights is if we can't kind of do that. Yeah. Well, actually, interestingly enough, one of the key issues that historians and philosophers, I'm thinking here like people like Jeremy Waldron, the historian and philosopher of John Locke and the ideas of equality, like increasingly what they're starting to question is whether or not we can even continue to have any kind of meaningful discussion about human rights if you remove the very theological basis upon which they're based. Like if you remove the very foundation of the idea that all human life is equally valuable and that as a person with a disability, your life is not any less valuable as anybody else's or black or white, male or female, slave or... Like if you remove that, then a secular discussion about human rights simply doesn't work. Mm. What do you guys think? Well, so what I'm curious about there is, is why do we think that it is from a global perspective, and even if you take your, your own faith hat off, as it were, why do we think that functional atheism is the common ground on which we can all stand? Because actually, if you look at the world today, and you're looking for the largest belief system that has the most diversity in terms of its racial, cultural and geographic spread. There is one absolutely obvious answer to that question, and it's Christianity. Yeah. The, the I, only... Go on. Oh, I just think, actually, the one thing that we can't not talk about before we finish really quickly, and I might turn to Natasha for this, is... Look, the obvious thing that a lot of Christians will be confronted with by the non-Christian friends is, look, the church's record on human rights is patchy um, and, and can be patchy at different times in history. How do we think about that as Christians? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm with you. I think we need to acknowledge the kind of elephant in the room, right, that Christians were like, oh, the Judeo-Christian worldview has created this wonderful thing we call human rights. Also, Christians have treated humans really badly a lot over a long time. Um, we, my colleagues and I at the Centre for Public Christianity made a whole documentary about it called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And, you know, I wrote the book of that. And, you know, we really wanted to look at that history and be like, actually, 
let's not get defensive about that. Um, Christians should be totally open and honest about the ways that the church has failed to live up to its own ideals. Um, and we wanted to encourage people to look at the good and the bad and actually in both cases to go back to Jesus, to go back to the founder and be like, he wrote this beautiful tune. Um, and when Christians have played in tune with what he taught, that's you know done these amazing things by producing the tradition of human dignity and human rights when christians have played out of tune um, with what he laid down and that has been um, you know disastrous and um, done great harm in the world um, and really that's the measure i think is whether it measures up to um, jesus who he is what he's on about all that kind of thing and honestly, the standards by which even our atheist friends will judge history are ultimately Christian standards. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a really great note to end on. So, um, Rebecca and Natasha, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Rebecca. And you, Natasha.